Have you tried all the diets out there because you are concerned about your health yet keep failing? Are you curious about these buzzwords we keep hearing? Intuitive eating, mindful eating, body positivity. What does it all mean? It's just so confusing. If you can relate to that, well, you are in the right place. Welcome to the Find Your Food Voice podcast, formerly the Love Food Podcast. I'm your host, Julie Duffy Dillon, seasoned dietitian who helps people move from a complicated relationship with food to developing their own food voice. We will help you defy diet culture, declare body liberation, and reclaim your peace. Find Your Food Voice Foundation has been built by listener letters, writing a letter to food, describing the love-hate relationship, and all the messy bits that feel like a dead end. Me and sometimes a guest sort through it all. We include book review segments from resident bibliophile and our podcast production assistant, Yelly Cruz. You can also catch Diet Culture IRL episodes with Colleen Rebner, operations manager over here, and hype woman extraordinaire. We ditch cookie cutter approaches, expose the lies that society feeds us, and rewrite the rules around food, eating, and our bodies. We call this finding your food voice, and it's vital we do it together. With almost 300 episodes over the last six plus years, we have heard it all, except from you. Submit your dear food letter at julieduffydillon.com. We need you to join us. Seriously, stop fixing yourself. And instead, let's focus on fixing our world's messed up, toxic view of the human existence. Subscribe now to join the fight. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to Going There, the crossroads where music and mental health meet. This season of Going There is brought to you by the fine folks at the Janssen Pharmaceutical Companies of Johnson & Johnson who never stop working to create a future where disease is a thing of the past. This month's episodes, focused on LGBTQ plus mental health, are specifically presented by iMe, created by Hope Lab. iMe Guide is a free, research-backed mental health tool built for and with the LGBTQ plus teens looking for support and help in affirming their identity and learning practical ways to cope with stress that is helpful, relevant, inclusive, and joyful. Find it at iMe.guide. That's the letter I, the letter M, the letter I, dot guide. Today, we kick off season three of the podcast by talking with singer-songwriter Bridie Mons Watson, better known as the artist Soak. Soak is gender non-binary and uses the pronouns they, them. Soak has been called a bold art pop auteur who makes music that is life-affirmingly raw pop. Soak's music often covers mental health topics, such as when they tackled their struggle with depression with their 2019 album, Grimtown. And they have been a strong mental health advocate, even creating a t-shirt with the phrase, quote, call me crazy on it to raise money for mental health causes. Soak has a new album out called If I Never Know You Like This Again, which includes the singles Purgatory and Swear Jar. Check out Soak's music, news, and upcoming tour dates at SoakSoakSoak.com. Now on the Going There podcast, we have the tough conversations to address important issues so we can learn from each other, challenge the stigma of mental illness, and get the care we need. And one of the most difficult things that people can face that can impact their mental health is when they are not able to understand and express their identity in the world. In an ideal world, people would have open minds and hearts about identity across a range of areas, gender, sexuality, career, interests, whatever is important to self-definition. Unfortunately, many people in the LGBTQ community face ongoing stressors in which people are not as open-minded, accepting, or understanding about parts of their identity, such as gender and sexuality. And so many people in the LGBTQ community face a range of stressors, from having to repeatedly explain their gender or sexual identity and pronouns, to being teased or bullied, to even living with the threat of abuse or being thrown out of their homes because they are not accepted by their family or community. During my conversation with Soak, 
we talk about the coping strategies that they've developed over time to deal with these stressors, including the music that they have used to address issues of identity and mental health in their lives, as well as the use and development of safe spaces as an important part of coping. Now, as we progress through this season of going there, our goal is to bring you, the audience, further into the conversation. On the Consequence website and wherever you find these episodes, you'll find a short questionnaire. We'd love to hear your feedback, questions that you have that have been sparked by our conversations with these incredible artists, and topic you'd love to see addressed. We incorporate these responses into episodes, as well as a monthly column called Ask Dr. Mike on the Consequence website. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. These help other folks find their way into the conversation so that they can go there with us. So let's go there and listen to what Soak has to say. Hey, Bridie, welcome to Going There. Hey. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming on the show. So let's start right from the beginning with your new album. And let's talk about a song that for you is representative of mental health and your mental health journey. When you asked me that, I had a little think. And it's hard because genuinely so much of my songs are very intertwined with that or mainly about that. Um, but the one that comes to mind specifically, there's a song, oh, it's it's hard to choose just one, but I think probably the most, I don't know, most honest one might be a song called Purgatory, um, which is the first track off my new record. Yeah, that track kind of hit me particularly. If I'm getting that right, the concept and the lyrics of nothing scares me, like, irrelevant. <laughs> yeah. Is that part of the Purgatory song? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the Purgatory song. That one really hit me. It's talking about the concept of being irrelevant, the idea of filling silence with nonsense. If we could just talk a little bit, because the idea of not being able to sit with oneself and filling the space, feeling that emptiness, is something that I think people generally struggle with, but particularly people who have mental health struggles. So maybe we can talk about that song a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're so right. That whole song, I was, I think I'm quite tough on myself in general as a person. Um, but definitely when I'm like having a low time, I'll be extra like, you're doing this wrong. You could be doing this better. And just like really beating myself up about it. And that song was kind of trying to go into why I thought all those things about myself. Like, what was I doing that was making me dislike myself in this way and kind of what could I change about myself that would make me like myself better so each line is just in some ways like nearly insulting but also just very honest <laughs> um and I kind of just wanted to say it how it was for myself to kind of I don't know center where I was in my life you know yeah and this idea of irrelevance because a lot of times when people talk about what frightens them it's not as much a kind of good or bad, it's good or nothingness. Like there's something about the idea of irrelevance that in theory shouldn't be so bad. So, you know, okay, I'm irrelevant. I'm kind of off the grid, but that's a powerful and disturbing feeling for a lot of people. So I'm just kind of curious from your perspective, why is that concept particularly disturbing in, for you in making that song? For me, the reasoning behind that line was, I think, in the music industry, you know, it's so centered around, be, around being relevant and, you know, being known, I guess. And for me, like, I had an album, my first album came out when I was 19 and it did quite well. And I wasn't really ready for that. All these people suddenly interested in what I was doing. And then I think from there to now, once you're, once you gain that kind of, I don't know. I don't know the right word, but like respect or attention. I think there's it's like a game trying to keep it in the music industry. And for me, it's an anxiety in this career of like, oh, will anybody care what I do next? Is are people going to come to shows? Are people going to listen to what I do? So, yeah, that's where the line is is has was born. Yes, and there's so many things about the concept of being irrelevant. There's the practical things, right? Because the more people listen, the more people listen to your music, buy your albums, come to shows, buy the merchandise, the more that you can take the time and carve out time to have a career. 
So that's obviously one big thing. But I think that for anyone who's an artist, one of the things that they'll say is that they just want to have a sense that they have what I've heard people term as valid art. <laughs> you know, they just want to know that it's real. Yeah. You know, so one of the things that I think can be very tough is that if you've had that kind of validation on the level that you had so early on, that can be fantastic. That could be wonderful. But it sort of sets the stage. Like, can I keep this going? You know, now I've had a taste of how it feels. And I also know that I can not feel it. Yeah. <laughs> and also when you're so young, like, I mean, I can't speak for everyone, but me, when I was that age, I didn't really, everything felt like a fluke. You know, I was just writing these songs because I was writing them for myself. And suddenly a lot of people were hearing them and wanting to come see it and, and talk about it. And at that point, I think I presented as someone that, and I think in that moment of time, I really did think I knew what I was doing and what I was about. And, you know, you know everything when you're like 19. And then through time and after that album came out, the whole process of kind of coming to actually learn who I was properly, not this kind of false sense that you have when you're younger. Like I really did have to go through the processes of ident identity and what do I want to do with my life and where do I want to be and what's happiness and success truly to me. You know, all those questions came a lot later than, than people were writing that I had them worked out. So it was such a like mind boggling thing to try and, just like see through all the mess of it and make sense of it all. And that's something that you've talked about before, this concept of imposter syndrome, Yeah. which again can oddly happen when things are really good, you know, because I think that when things track along the way that's expected, and sometimes those expectations are not particularly high in terms of the plans that someone has for themselves, it's like, okay, this feels right. You know, I'm playing, I'm making music in my apartment or my basement, and I play shows to some of my friends. They come see me. Oh, okay, that all makes sense. <laughs> now, all of a sudden, it's like I'm this artist, and it's great. But again, that's where the imposter syndrome comes in. We start to think to yourself, is, is this beyond my dreams? Like, do I deserve this? Should I be here? Yeah. And it feels like no matter how much people tell you otherwise, somehow it just doesn't feel right. Yeah, 100%. And also, like, the pedestal thing, I think. Like as a younger person, it was really, I mean, I was really thankful to be taken seriously at such a young age because I felt like what I was saying was legit um, and everything I was doing was very honest. I am lucky that I always had a family and friend group around me that were like, you know, would really center me and humble me very quickly and never really let me get too carried away with things. That was hard, I think, especially because... You know, I know it looks good in magazines and I get why people write these like crazy quotes, but being called like the voice of a generation and wise and stuff like this when you're that age is not, it's very hard when you're already trying to work out your identity to try and, you know, solidify that when you've got all these outside voices being like a genius, blah, 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 which, you know, is a bit intense. <laughs> um, so I think that threw me harder. I just like being put on that kind of like, you know, acclaim kind of scale of people putting you up on these things. And I don't know, it me it messed me around a wee bit. I think it took me a while to kind of come down from that after that album. And when I was going back into a writing process, it really took a while to, because I wanted, I've always wanted to do things genuinely and not just for the sake of putting things out. And it was just, it was a lot of juggle and pressure that took, it was a, a lot to adapt to. Yes, and one of the things that I find with people who I work with is that their mood state dictates what they feel is real. So, for example, if we feel good, then things that happen that are good or things that we remember that are good, it seems kind of congruent. It seems like it makes sense. But something that you've talked about in the past was struggling with anxiety and depression. And when someone struggles with depression, what feels real is, you know, things that are not so good. You know, feeling depressed feels real. Things that make sense in the context of sadness feel real. Yeah. Those things go together. And so in a lot of cases, that can contribute to that disconnect that you're talking about, which is, why am I getting all these accolades? This doesn't make sense. This is not consistent with how I feel, especially when I'm depressed or anxious. And so when I feel that way, I don't really know what people are seeing. You know, they're seeing something great. Yeah. I'm feeling something horrible. <laughs> That's a good point. It's also, it's, yeah. It's in, that feeds into a lot of things I do, especially 
regarding songwriting a lot of days i'll be like if if in myself i'm having a good day i'm like i'm unstoppable i'm gonna write the best songs ever and then i'll wake up on a bad day and, and everything will be trash and it could actually be good it's just your the way you look at it from your mental perspective changes everything yes and do you mind if we talk about how anxiety and depression have played out in your life or even the concept that you're talking about figuring out your identity you know, there's a lot of different things that make up identity. There's identity in terms of art, there's self-concept, there's gender identity, there's sexuality. And maybe one of the things that we can talk about is your mental health identity, like how you came to understand that you were anxious or depressed and how you relate that to your identity and how you think about yourself. So I've, I've, I've been lucky that I've grown up with two parents who work in mental health. So my understanding has always been very good of of mental health and um and depression and stuff like that and a lot of mental health problems run in my family as well so i think i was kind of expecting to hit a wall at some point um and growing up i kind of yeah not nothing major really until i was probably 17 or 18 and then I kind of immediately became, I was a very, I was, I, my life has been interesting because I was a very angry kid who was very shy. And then I was a very confident teenager. And then I became at 20, just like super anxious and unsure of everything. Maybe that's how most people's lives go, but that's how mine's did. And I nearly had growing up, I always had like this expecting that to kind of hit me at some point given my parents lives and my grandparents lives and it definitely did um and that was probably to there's a lot of other factors as well my parents had a divorce just after my first album had come out and there was a lot of different <laughs> adjustments to be made and the second record i did grim time was actually a direct result of all those feelings and i did a lot of I'd been on tour for this first album for like a year. I'd spent a lot of time alone. I was quite lonely, I think, and sad having spent all that time alone. I remember one time, because we, we were so lucky and I was so grateful to have all these experiences, but they were still tough at times. And we'd done this festival in Australia and we were touring around. And I got back to a hotel room at like 3 p.m. because we'd already played the festival and jet lag was insane. I just like sat in the hotel room and cried. And I like I, re I remember that so poignantly because it's not something I would not really, not it's okay to cry obviously, but I'm not a huge crier. Um, and I think it was just the stress and pressure of it all had hit me. And then after that tour, cause everything had been so high and exciting and great to suddenly be alone, properly alone was really hard and scary because it was like, am I gonna have these opportunities again? Am I gonna do that again? Have I peaked already? Which is an insane thought to think of when you're 20 or 21. Um, so yeah, I went through a lot of those things. And I mean, I, obviously you, don't, you aren't cured of your mental health, <laughs> but I think I, I, I'm a lot more aware of myself and I've done a lot of work to kind of adjust to how I can help myself out when I know it's taken a turn. So that's... Yeah, that's me until now, I think. You know, the stressors you're talking about are so powerful. I think one of the reasons why we have musicians on the podcast is because people generally, or often I should say, go to music as a way of trying to work things out in their life. And part of the reason is, is that even under the best of circumstances, it's such a grueling career. There's such a grueling nature to being a musician, and it can be overwhelming. Yeah. And unfortunately, the better things get, the more grueling it becomes, the more records you have to make, the more touring you have to do, the more interviews like this that you have to do, the more people want your music. And, you know, this whole concept of relevancy becomes even more important because you become more relevant to more people and you have to keep up with that. I mean, all these things, quite frankly, are not particularly healthy for anyone, really, but definitely someone who's struggling with anxiety and depression. And so one of the things I'm kind of curious about is you know, because you talked about knowing that you had a family history and this was part of your identity, is how were you able to start thinking about, you know, your depression as part of who you are 
and how it related to being a musician and how you thought about coping. I think for a long time, I would never have defined it as depression. I would have just always, because my thing is I, when I get depressed, I get really removed and like I disassociate with kind of what's happening and I'm just like here, but not there. So for me, I didn't really understand what that was because my understanding for a long time of depression was that you were just sad. Um, so I didn't really put words to it for a long time. And then I was depressed for a long time and I'd been living at home with my mom. I was like 20 at the time. I'd just come off to her and I was really finding it hard to adjust. And she was, she sat me down and was like, this is, you know, what's going on and you need to change something because if you keep living this way, you're not going to get, you're just going to feel worse and i've like in my life my friend my friend groups i've always grown up with people that are have different struggles and i don't know i guess for a while because i couldn't directly see what i was going through that them going through that same thing it was hard to i don't know figure out what what things were and what what was going on i think i've always had kind of a complex of like this problem is worse, so I'm going to shut up. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I don't want to, I want to help this person rather than talk about this minor issue of mine, which is not healthy and not helpful. And, you know, again, getting back to this identity concept is that, you know, the stance towards depression can be really soothing, but it can also be unhelpful. You know, you can convince yourself like, oh, okay, this isn't a quote unquote problem. So that feels kind of good. <laughs> You know, in some ways, yeah. you know, maybe my problems aren't so bad, but everything we know about emotions is that if you minimize them, you suppress them, you avoid them, it winds up being horrible yeah. and really making them come back a lot worse because your body, your mind are trying to communicate with you. And it's like, if anyone's not listening, you know, people just yell louder and that's what happens with emotions, yeah. you know, so it's tempting to want to minimize what we're going through. It can be so alluring. You know, this isn't a big deal. This is terrifying revelation as well to have because i th i think that's an earned like a learned thing through my life because i have a dad who who you know copes with things that way just removed emotionally from from the situation and so i just that's what i came to do through in my life and i never thought that was really an issue <laughs> i thought that was good because you were you know you were getting through things and you know i just got incredible avoidance um, and I didn't realize how good I was at it until the past two or three years, really. My, um, my girlfriend's actually, she's, she wants to be a, a therapist and she's doing psychology and it's, I've been with her nearly five years and it's the longest relationship I've had and the most significant of my life so far. And I think it was only through meeting her and her being like, do you know, you do this? Do you know, like you just check out and through her kind of frustrations with trying to you know help me when I wasn't helping myself I was just so not there I didn't want help I didn't want to talk about it I didn't realize any of that was an issue until her and I realized how much it directly affected her and then my friends and my family and that was a real wake-up call and that's been a process that's continuing and is taking a very long time to kind of rewire or whatever but, but recognizing that was a thing I did was shocking to me, <laughs> which is funny because I literally do it and did do it so much. You know, and the problem with avoidance is that it works until it doesn't. Yeah. And, you know, because if it didn't work, we wouldn't keep doing it. You know, you're saying, oh, you know, you're good at it. I mean, think about what you've described. You know, here you are. You knew you had this mental health history. Yet you're coping with it. And even if it's by avoidance, you know, you're getting all these amazing accolades from your work. You're called the voice of a generation. You're in this relationship. And someone that obviously for the last five years, you know, you've got things figured out to a certain extent. And so, you know, why wouldn't you think to yourself, hey, I, I'm doing it. And so why not keep avoiding? And I think that's one of the things that makes it tough for people because they'll sometimes beat themselves up when they find out that they've been avoiding or suppressing but they do it because it works for a while. It's just that it can really eventually crash. Catches up. Yeah, that's, I think, 
I definitely felt the crash more than ever. I think because as well, like, I don't know if it's because my life was so busy or because I was making my life so busy, but that made it a lot easier just to like float through. Got this to do, got this to do, I can't talk about that. I'll do this later. Really putting things off. Um, and then why is the standstill of the pandemic and stuff? I had no choice and I crashed hard because everything was at once like a tidal wave of all the avoidance suddenly nowhere to go and like that was terrifying and very hard and the song we were speaking about purgatory was a direct result when i kind of worked my way out of the haze of it all i could make could understand kind of maybe why that's the song kind of came about as a way of a reset you know like what what am i hating about my life right now what am i doing that's bugging me as a person what do i need to move forward with this and writing that song was just kind of way of i don't know like acceptance in a way like the chorus is very much the chorus is days avalanche me another year flees the scene and when i'm that low that's i feel like time is just falling on me and there's nothing i can do about it and it was really cathartic to say that like it was and not jazz it up too much you know just like this sucks how do i how do i change it kind of with no answer just the question being out there you know and i find that in a lot of mental and physical health the answers are often simple but they're not easy and often we assume that they're complicated because the feelings are so overwhelming it's like Whatever's making me feel this overwhelmed has to be complicated. There's no way it can be simple. So the answers have to be complicated too. But I think in a lot of cases, you almost want to go with the opposite and say, okay, this feels overwhelming. This feels complicated. How do I make it more simple for myself? And I think what you're talking about is perhaps the most important pivot, which is going from avoidance to just looking at it. Let me just be willing to look at what's happening. Let me be able to have a conversation with myself. So many good things happen from that. Because, you know, we learn how to habituate to those feelings because now we're addressing them. We start to have more of an understanding of ourselves as opposed to avoiding where we are more likely to sensitize and get more and more scared. And now we have more and more understanding. So it's such an important pivot what you did. And I'm really glad that you're able to find that in music because that's to me is the thing that makes all the difference is to go from avoiding to not avoiding. Yeah, 100%. And like... Now, I mean, for me, I still need to work on how I'm going to confront things properly in a way that I can be guided. My, I'm my own worst enemy in ways that I'm like, ah, oh, I know what the problem is, so I can resolve it. And I rely on myself too heavily at times with that. And in ways, like a lot of the time now, the way I really work things out is to sit down and write because I'll, you know, get everything out of my brain and on the piece of paper and then I can comprehend it. And I'll often say things I don't even know were in there or like playing on my mind. And that's really helpful. But I know that like it needs to be a step beyond that. That's kind of, I've had a, the year that I've had has been very hectic in terms of like my living scenarios and a way I've been kind of putting it off as in whenever I'm housed officially, where I want to be, I'm going to work these things out. But that's part of my, I'm, I'm just like living everywhere at the moment. I'm all over the place. So it's something I need to organize and get together. <laughs> and, you know, again, just to pivot a little bit, because we're talking about avoidance and that skill of avoidance. And I think that mental health is definitely something that feels at times like it's something that we're colluding to avoid. You know, people just don't want to think about it themselves. People who are parents, sometimes well-intentioned loved ones, just want to try to minimize it, and it can really backfire. And as we discussed, I think a lot of people have the same feeling of that process when they start talking about their gender identity or their sexuality, where there's that feeling that if someone's identity is different from what we consider to be traditional, everyone kind of colludes to try to suppress that. And so one of the things I'm just curious about is if you've ever come across situations where There were people who were directly or indirectly trying to get you to avoid thinking about or talking about your your identity or your sexuality. That's interesting because I have grown up in a really accepting and understanding household, you know, just a very left-leaning 
and you know I grew up going to like anti-bomb marches and anti-gun marches and stuff like that so I knew when I came out as gay that it wasn't going to be an issue it's still like I, at the time I was nervous but I knew I didn't run the risk of getting chucked out of my house and you know being removed from the family so I I never really had any shame regarding that I just kind of I, I knew I'd be safe I think the only anxiety I had about coming out as gay initially was that I'd have to be like intimately honest about my life in that way and that embarrassed me but not in like a repressed homophobia way in the way that I think I would have been very embarrassed to tell anyone I had a boyfriend if I did you know um so that was easy breezy for me which was really a privilege and that was fine but I never I was, I mean, I was happy to go by that title for, for a long time. And I simultaneously was having these real doubts about my gender to the point that I was, when I was 15, I was telling my friends to call me a different name. I'd written a letter to one of my parents coming out as trans because that's what I presumed at the time must must be this feeling, um, to which was met with real, you're not, this is not a thing, you're young, you're impressionable, really shutting down the idea, which scarred me <laughs> just in ways that it really put me back inside myself. You know, you, you open up about these things or these questions and they're met with such, like, I don't know what the right word is, just they're, they're closed down immediately. So I shelved the idea and the feelings because that was my first taste of fear in terms of my identity or just like rejection um so i privately had all those feelings for years and i had friends who i could confide in and be and be myself around them but i think because of that initial rejection of the idea i i just like it's it just made me so shameful so I didn't think, well, I did think about it, but I didn't do anything about it for a long time. And as the years went by, I kind of, I researched and I learned a lot. And only in the past like four years, I heard the term non-binary, that wasn't the thing. And I mean, I was all over gay YouTube when I was younger and I just, that was something that was never brought to my attention. Um, and when I finally came to understand the term, I was like, oh my God, that's literally it. And there was such a relief in finding that, but also a real process of, like even though I identified with it personally so much to actually outwardly express that was very hard. And still, to so like, I feel shameful about the shame I hold with it, but still now it's something that I feel fear to be outspoken about. And also... It's a weird like juxtaposition because I do feel fear and you know there's so much online hate and there's so much targeted at the moment maybe that's also fuels the fire but the fear and also in being honest about it and publicly you know expressing that I've like met so many people that I can really feel understood by and I understand them and it's acceptance that I hadn't known before, you know? So it's been a real process. It still is. But I, yeah, it, to me, it shocked me that it was such a... It was so different than whenever I was younger and I came out as gay initially, you know? It's so interesting that you've had these sort of parallel experiences and you see the different effect it had based on how it was received. And I think one of the terms you talked about is privilege, you know, because... It's very important when talking about some of these issues that we recognize that privilege can be multi-layered, you know, because first it's the privilege of just the stress of not having to explain things to people that are assumed for others. You know, if you're in a world where it's assumed that people are straight or assume that people are a certain gender, it's like, okay, well, now I don't have to deal with the stress of having to explain that. And it is stressful, especially if you have to do it repeatedly, you know, you have to explain, you know, who you're with or how you dress or what your interests are. It really starts to add up and you have to explain yourself over and over and over again. It just gets to the point where at some point it just gets to be too much. 
And then it goes into what might even be considered an emotional privilege, where there's the safety of not having other people trying to make you feel ashamed for something that feels natural to you, you know? And there's also the physical privilege of not being worried that you're going to be beaten up or abused or kicked out of your house. And over time, you know, the difference between having this privilege and not having this privilege, when you start talking about all the layers, can become very powerful. It's a very different life. You know, not having that privilege and not having that safety can just be incredibly stressful and overwhelming. Yeah, yeah. 100%. And it's at the point you made as well about this having to explain. I think that is such a part of it. Because I grew up like, I've always been very tomboy in my whole life. And my childhood was spent with like, that would be the thing I was attacked with, like, is that a girl or a boy? And bathrooms and like always being asked to prove my gender at a young age or my name or, you know, because a lot of time I wasn't even believed when I would say I was a girl, I'd be told you're not, which me now is kind of happy about, but me then was terrified by. And it was such a, that's where the shame began. And, but to this point now where I am open about it, even then it's the, explanation of it all is still so painful for me and I'm not quite sure why but there's been a few occasions in which I've been in like a dinner setting with people that I don't know like I'm not what's the right word like authoritative figures people that I'm trying to impress I suppose that are older than me and I'm asked to explain it publicly in front of these people at a table or something that like that other feeling and that I hate that <laughs> that is still so painful for me and to correct people when they get it wrong is still something I really struggle to do. I think one of the best things that has emerged from these conversations is the concept of safe spaces. Yeah. And I think a lot of people experience safe spaces as a lifeline to protect against these stressors. And because these stressors can be so damaging to mental health. And if you have that safe space, even just for a little bit, even just to have some time yeah. to be protected from all of those stressors, just to have some people that might get it. It can be so powerful to turn things around and to improve, you know, not only health and well-being, but also like people's path towards really having an authentic gender identity and sexuality. Yeah, no, it's so true. Even the difference having one gender neutral toilet at a, at a show or a venue or a restaurant makes is insane. Like, that is something that genuinely brings me so much fear and anxiety all the time, every time I have to use one, because I don't know what's going to happen or who's going to talk to me or what problem I'm going to run into. Just even having that one safe space at a venue is so significant, and I appreciate it so much when I see it. And we try to do that at our shows as well. But it's... Safe spaces are underrated. <laughs> and you're right, like, what people say about you know, this is soft people, this is, you know, this overly, I don't know, I feel like at the moment I've come into situations with a lot of people that want to, that want to say that like queer people or non-binary people are like over, doing this overly woke thing where, you know, you're overly aware and you're overly sensitive and all this stuff. Um, I've been finding a lot of frustration with trying to explain that to people that are close to me that I really respect and like and I'm like no these people just want to live safely and comfortably you don't understand you don't get it <laughs> you know and also I just think sometimes people are so blinded by privilege they can't even fathom what it's like to not be them you know it's that gaslighting of like this isn't you know you're overcomplicating you're making things tough for yourself as opposed to I could help make this easier for you it's yeah it's putting two and two together just in in the world at the moment seems weird. <laughs> and, you know, this is why I appreciate artists coming out and talking about these issues, because anyone who's a fan of yours, anyone who's just listening in, just knowing that there's someone else who went through it can be such a lifeline. Yeah, It can be something, you know, they'll say for teenagers, you just need one thing to be able to hold on to, yeah. to make things okay until adulthood. And I think for a lot of people, it's their music. You know, the music is the place where they can listen to the artists they care about. And whenever they were in a bad place, the music's there. You just put on an album or maybe go to a concert and, and be okay, even if just for a little bit. Yeah. And I think that that's why you know music, quite frankly, 
for a lot of people was, was their first safe space. It's like, this is something I can connect to and there's nobody out there who can intrude on it or who could put their stress on it or could put their opinions on it. Yeah, a hundred percent. And that's what's, you know, it's portable, your safe space when it's music. And when I was a kid, I like the many times I, I became obsessed when I went with music when I was like 13 or 14, I started buying all these records. And I think what got me, cause I'd always, I'd had my upbringing was a lot of music around the house. There was guitars and stuff, but my end that felt like personal to me was in school. I'd made friends with all these kind of alternative kids and I was quite shy. And I was introduced to Tegan and Sarah when I was like 13 or 14. And it was my first moment of being like, people can look like that and you and talk about, you know, their sexuality and their lives and their mental health. Honestly, like I'd never seen, I'd never felt that or seen that. And I remember how important that was to me. And I remember going like home from school that day and being like, researched everything, was like full fan, obsessed. And it was because I felt understood. And it was, you know, I come from a smaller place. I didn't even like, I, I don't think, I was one of the people I think people knew I was gay before I did because I was like, oh, it's not even relevant to me. Uh, but I know how precious that escape is and that understanding and representation is. And for me, whenever I publicly said that I was non-binary, that was so much about that because what it meant to me was like, what as a kid, what that meant to me was priceless. And if I could, do that and be honest about it for anyone else. I, I, did, I didn't want to hold back from being that person, you know? Did you have any particular Tegan and Sarah song that really did it for you in terms of this concept or in terms of your mental health? This is really your go-to album? The go-to album, I got into them when they had just put out the album, The Con, which is my favorite album of theirs and one of my favorite albums ever. And the whole record is really about very it's very personal and it's a lot about mental health like the one of the main songs is the con itself which the chorus lyric is nobody likes me even if i cry <laughs> and i think like being able to scream that passionately and cry to it and stuff was very very helpful in my in my growing up and also in ways like beyond just the artist it's what the community brings together like from being into those guys I met so many people, made so many friends and really found my first friend group properly out of that. And it was community and it was safe space and it was understanding. And, you know, it's so much more than just the art and the artist sometimes. Oh, that's that's powerful stuff. And I'm so glad you had that. And I know I, I think it's great now that things have come full circle. And, you know, there are people who are looking to you as that inspiration, the same way that you looked at Tegan and Sarah. And I really appreciate you coming in and being on this podcast and being so open and honest about your music and your life. Yeah. Thanks for having me as well. It was really, it was a unique way to, to do an interview, but really interesting. So there it is. Soak talking about how stressors that limit our ability to explore and develop our identity in an open and accepting way can be damaging to our mental health and well-being. There is so much to take away from the conversation with Soak. One thing I'd like to point out is our discussion of the importance of safe spaces. Soak talked about how stressful it can be when people share their gender or sexual identity. They even described the different effect of their own family's response to their gender and sexuality and how that influenced their mental health. And we discussed how people in the LGBTQ community need to have safe spaces to be able to understand and express true gender identity and sexuality. It's important for people to realize that exploring one's gender identity, sexuality, or mental health can in many ways be a lifelong journey. And there may be times when we feel less safe emotionally, socially, even physically or financially, because we may not have a supportive community. But it's so important for us to realize in those moments that while we may feel alone, we are not alone. And while we must validate and understand how stressful it is to not be able to safely explore our mental health, our gender identity, or sexuality, it is important to try to not give up hope. 
There are other people out there struggling or trying to figure it out also, and communities who will be supportive. And sometimes we can just take a first step with finding other people in the world through music. Soak discussed the powerful effects of listening to Tegan and Sarah and feeling a connection regarding the themes of mental health and sexuality that runs through their music. And if we can just take those first steps, we might feel comfortable taking additional steps to find and develop a safe space, such as reaching out to communities who are more open about issues like mental health and identity. And to talk more about safe spaces and the steps that people can take, here's Josh Lavra of Hope Lab talking about their program, I'm me guide. There's a really helpful model um, from psychology called the minority stress model, which I, I know you're familiar with, but I'll, I'll give a little overview for folks who might not be. It essentially is describing the stressors that someone might experience from society based on their identity. And the way this manifests for a lot of young people is um, through internalized homo or transphobia. So this belief that I am not, um, I'm not okay. Um, it's not okay to be homosexual, to be queer, to be trans, to be anything except heterosexual or cisgender. There's this um, need to conceal. So um, going inside yourself and not being honest with who you are or sharing who you are with the the world outside of yourself. Uh, There's this consistent expectation of rejection. So you can walk into a space and you could feel that you're going to be judged or rejected for the fact that you are um, uh, anything but cisgender or heterosexual. And then there's actual events that can happen to a young person um, or truly anyone who has uh, multiple minority identities around um, discrimination and acts of violence. And these, the, I mean, you search LGBTQ plus youth on Google and all of the results at the top are about suicide and harm and violence and these issues that come from um, related to minority stress. So I think it's, it's really clear that these are factors that are affecting young people, but also something that they're exposed to on a regular basis. And one of the things that's so difficult about this issue is that the stressors are not necessarily linear and single. And so one of the Mm -hmm. things that you described that's so difficult is that a person could experience these stressors, could experience discrimination, abuse, have it not be acknowledged, have them experience mental health issues that are totally understandable within the context of stress and abuse, and then be judged by that from people who aren't acknowledging that the person underwent abuse and saying, well, this is because of the sexuality or gender identity. So before someone has even gotten a chance to to put their feet on the ground and orient to who they are and what they're about, they've already had multiple stressful situations in which they're not only abused, discriminated against, left out, whatever, whatever that may be, but then also judged. And the label that's then put on it is not what's actually going on. And that is, is horribly crazy making to an individual. Yeah, totally. I, I consider, you know, right now in the United States, there's over 300 pieces of legislation that are working against queer people. And to, to be a young person, I mean, I'm an older queer person, so I have, I've been able to work, you know, with a therapist and with my community on having skills to, to you know, fight against the fact that these things are happening. And I know that they're wrong. But someone who's just starting to realize that, okay, I'm gay or I'm bi or I'm trans or I'm a lesbian, they see this language and these, this, these laws and this legislation that's coming out and it's reinforcing the idea that they aren't okay as they are. And I think that's, that's been so core to this work that we've been doing with the creation of IME is to just provide a space for a young person to be affirmed exactly how they are. Whatever identity they're feeling out right now or whatever part of their, their own journey of becoming who they really are, um, that they're in, they they can exist safely there um, beside me. And it's so wonderful that you're doing this. And, and in some of the conversations we've had with artists, we've talked about the importance of having those safe spaces, but the need to have them even speaks more to how severe the stressors are. I mean, think about what you're talking about. You're talking about providing a space where someone can be accepted for who they are. It's, it's, really, really, really disturbing that your company needs to exist, despite the fact that it's wonderful that your company exists. Truly, like what, what, what we're, tr- we're creating space for is not asking for a lot. It's asking for allowing a young person in, per- in particular to be who they are. And I think the, the, the beautiful thing about the queer community is that these spaces have been created and are continuing to be created 
uh, in online spaces, a lot of Discord servers popping up where young people can come together, uh, TikTok, Instagram, Snapchat. But then you also have physical spaces like LGBT centers. Um, at the beginning of this work, we actually had a chance to travel to a handful of LGBT centers across the country in Anchorage, Alaska, Birmingham, Alabama, Chicago, Los Angeles, Pennsylvania, and blown away by the services that they're providing to young people in their communities, because they can come into a space and they could sort of let down that guard, let down some of those stressors that they feel outside of that space, and then be around people who accept them. They know that I can show up exactly how I am. I could use the, the, the pronouns that are my pronouns. I can ask for the respect and expect the respect that I deserve, and it'll be in this space. I think it's really powerful. Thank you to Soak for this wonderful conversation, and Josh of Hope Lab for talking about how Hope Lab is developing safe spaces with IME Guide. This season of Going There is brought to you by the fine folks at Janssen Pharmaceutical Companies of Johnson & Johnson, who never stop working to create a future where disease is a thing of the past. This month's episodes, focused on LGBTQ mental health, are specifically presented by IME, created by Hope Lab. IME Guide is a free, research-backed mental health tool built for and with the LGBTQ teens looking for support and help in affirming their identity and learning practical ways to cope with stress that is hopeful, relevant, inclusive, and joyful. Find it at IME.Guide. That's the letter I, the letter M, the letter I, dot guide. I want to thank Consequence Podcast Network and Sound Mind Live for including me in this wonderful project. And thanks to Pete Wilson and the Rooks for letting us use their song, I Know. If you are struggling with anxiety, depression, or addiction and are looking for help, please call the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration National Helpline at 1-800-622-4357. If you're thinking about harming yourself and want to seek help, please contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. You may also go to the Sound Mind Live and Consequence websites for more information. So be healthy, be safe, and be kind to yourself and others. See you next time at the Crossroads.